Every single one of these stories we've covered so far has been a tragedy. Uh, that's the reason the 27 Club exists, is because young death is always so hard to grapple with. The wasted potential, the unfortunate, unforeseen things that can happen that lead a person to want to self-destruct, whether or not it's through misadventure or, or predetermined death. Um, Amy Winehouse might be the saddest case in the club because of how whatever ended up killing her, throwing her down into a spiral that caused her to become so unhealthy, is so it's so transparent. You can see it happening nowadays. Um, how privacy is no longer a thing. Um, how her life was documented on video and on audio and and celebrity culture was one of those things that just sort of it's so evident what was happening to her now um, Karen Heller sort of put it best in 2008 in an article for the Philadelphia Inquirer she said about Amy Winehouse she's only 24 with six Grammy nominations crashing headfirst into success and despair with a codependent husband in jail exhibitionist parents with questionable judgment and the paparazzi documenting her emotional and physical distress Meanwhile, a hout designer, Karl Lagerfeld, appropriates her disheveled style by an eating issues to market to the elite while proclaiming her the new Bardot. That is a lot to deal with when you are in your mid-twenties. There's an amazing documentary that came out in 2015 called Simply Amy. Um, won a ton of awards, including um, Best Documentary at the Brit Awards that year. Uh, absolutely worth seeing because it really emphasizes how heartbreaking her tale was um, from her rise. And her spiral was just insane. And I think what's hard to remember, I mean, it didn't happen too long ago, but I think everyone, especially older people who were seeing it all happen in real time, all anyone really had to go on was what the media were saying. And the media, there was a point where it shifted over into... A level of stardom where she wasn't a person anymore she was an idea a representative if you will of a certain a certain echelon of, of singer and the problems that she were going through no one really took sympathy they just you, it was okay to make fun of her you know uh, which made her death all the more tragic so where did she start she was born in london uh south london specifically to jewish parents um throughout her life she acknowledged her Jewish upbringing and was proud of it, but she wasn't specifically religious. Her father was Mitch Winehouse, um, who before her career took off was a window panel installer that then turned taxi driver. Um, her mother was Janice. Uh, Mitch would factor very heavily into her celebrity life, sort of acting as a, as a twisted kind of guardian, but he ended up being kind of a predatory figure, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um... Nobody in her immediate family were musicians, but a lot of her mother's brothers, her uncles on her maternal side, were jazz professionals. 
and that turned her on to jazz singing and jazz performance. She became a little bit of a jazz aficionado. She actually had sort of an encyclopedic knowledge about jazz, um, and that was talked about a little bit by Questlove, who she was planning on doing projects with just before her life ended. Um, she would learn things like which bass player was playing on which specific record, like things like that. Some, something that was sort of surprising out of a, a singer that was known for doing an, a sort of take on soul and R&B. She attended a lot of schools growing up, including some performance schools, uh, specifically one called the Sylvia Young Theater School. This is where she met uh, a budding soul singer named Tyler James, who would later factor into her career by helping to send her demo tape to A&R professionals. Uh, she started playing guitar when she was 14, started writing her own music a year after that. When she was legally able to work, that's when she started working. She would work all over the place. Uh, she would sing with some groups. She actually, I believe, worked as a journalist for an entertainment network. Gradually over time, she received more and more high-profile gigs. Uh, she was the featured female vocalist of the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, which was a huge honor. Um, she stated openly that around that time, she wasn't really considering singing or mu music as a career itself. It was just something that she knew she had an interest in and that she was good at. Um, so her friend Tyler uh, sent off her demo reel to a bunch of A&R people, and she was discovered by um, 19 Management. And 19 Management was a management company that was uh, started by Simon Fuller. If you don't know who Simon Fuller is, he's widely considered to be one of the most influential British music managers, maybe one of the most influential straight-up music managers of all time. He's the guy who signed a whole bunch of influential potbacks in the early 2000s, uh, including S Club 7, um, tons of different people. Uh, he also started the Idol franchise, including American Idol, and So You Think You Can Dance. So this guy was directly responsible for the trends in pop music um, that Winehouse later wrote as a reaction to. Um, Fuller and the company signed Winehouse to 19 Management, uh, only paid her about 250 pounds a week while she was being trained and groomed to be a pop person. And she was kept as an industry secret during that. You know, they wanted people to start talking about her. And talk about her, she did. Um, even though she was still performing regularly uh, as a jazz singer at Cobden Club, you know, doing gigs, practicing, she, she was a secret. You know, no one, no one was supposed to know about her. Um, which doesn't happen a lot in the music industry, like having them keep, keep her under wraps for a second, because there was uh, an A&R rep for Island Records. This guy's name was Darkest Bees, and I'm not making that up. Uh, he was chatting with uh, this guy who was managing the Lewinson Brothers, who were also under 19 management at the time, and, and this guy was showing off the productions they were doing, um, and he showed off Winehouse, this girl, who he didn't know who she was, but... This girl who was a key vocalist, like, and Darkest heard her voice, and he asked, she was amazing, who is this person? And the guy's like, well, she's under wraps, we can't, I, I'm, I'm, I can't disclose that information, like, it's an NDA. So B spent months doing independent research, asking people who were in the business, like, I need to know who this person is, do you know? And they're like, we don't know, or we can't say. Uh, eventually, he finally figured out who this person was, it was Amy. And he contacted her and was like, I love you. I think, I love your voice, I should say. Um, I, we, we want to sign you. We want to do things with you. We want to sort of steal you under from whatever is going to happen at the time. As it turns out, Winehouse was already signed to EMI. Uh, and they were about to 
conceive of a publishing deal. Uh, then she was brought into the uh, offices of uh, Island Records, and the head of Island, Nick Gatfield, heard her sing for the first time. She performed a guitar for him, and immediately were like, "Well, we got to get her. We got to get her out of this contract and sign her on to our contract." So. Uh, Island offered her bid. She accepted. This got further attention from EMI and also Virgin Records. Uh, the fact that they were fighting back and forth ended up starting a bidding war. This sparked even greater interest, and things started to spiral from there. Uh, so musically, you sort of got to remember the climate as well. Uh, early 2000s, mid-2000s, um, around the time she was putting out her first album, Frank. Uh, American Idol and other reality TV music shows were absolutely rampant in Western countries. Like, it was sort of a logical extension from these Lunchable-type prepackaged uh, singers, you know. And a lot of people, there were a lot of people who were into it, obviously, that's why it was popular, but there were many who also felt that there needed to be some fresh young talent, somebody who was doing something different as a response to what felt like that canned, packaged entertainment. Um, and that's sort of what she was aiming for with her first album. It was called Frank. It was released in 2003 under Island Records, produced by um, her longtime producer, Salam Remy. Most of it, mostly positive responses by critics. Uh, it was nominated for a Brit Award for Best Female Solo Artist, and that is what helped drive even more attention. All of a sudden, she was playing jazz clubs and, and R&B clubs and, and a lot of clubs in general, and managing some sizable crowds. And that... We're noticing a trend here. This is where a lot of artists like to be. They just she stated herself that this is where this is where she wanted to be in her life. She would just love to play small club after small club to a good deal of people and and have it just be at that point. At no point in her career, and she has stated this over and over again, at no point did she ever care about any sort of fame. Um, when it happened, she would sweep it under the rug. She'd be like, "I, I really don't care about this." Um, as she got more and more popular, her album went platinum. She had award nominations like the... She was shortlisted for the Mercury Prize, which if you don't know what that is, it's a very influential British award that they only give out to British artists. Um, she did win the Ivor Novello Prize in 2004 for Stronger Than Me um, and for Best Contemporary Album. Uh, later, of course, you could see uh, her motivations, her, her will to be a perfectionist and be in control of her music, you could see that come out because she stated in an interview very bluntly that she really only contributed, she only had control of 80% of the record. A lot of uh, the songs and the mixes that she wanted to do for the record, Island Nixed, and she didn't like that at all. She, she felt kind of bitter about it. So she had her recording contract. Um, she had done successful. The album went platinum. That's a huge sign that there, there's profitable things to come. So her record label was like, all right, well, we'll just wait for you to write new songs. You'll go on tour. This is going to be great. Um, the problem with Winehouse, um, and this became a very recurring problem throughout her entire life, actually sort of led to the spiral down that she experienced, was that she was surrounded and grew up in an environment where no one really told her no. She didn't really have like a specific support system, not, not a ton of role models. Her parents, as we mentioned, you know, they... They weren't terribly controlling. They they were very permissive parents. Her father especially because he, he was never around. He was always working, doing taxi service, um, doing window panels. Uh, she developed bulimia when she was 15, and her mother sort of wrote it off and, and was like, oh, this will be a phase, when, as it turns out, it helped contribute to her declining health later in life. Uh, and 
she didn't necessarily have the discipline to do her own thing when it was time for her to, to get on get on board with making another album. So around 2005, which is two years after Frank came out, we were in that album cycle again. It was about time for her, according to her management, to start thinking about writing music. But she would put it off a lot. She would procrastinate. She would go out to clubs. She would drink a ton. She went out to one specific club and ended up meeting uh, a guy who was in the indie rock scene in Britain. Or at least I think he... he he did music videos, essentially. Uh, he was in that scene. His name was Blake Fielder Sybil. Uh, and as soon as she met him, almost as soon as she had met him, they, they, that night they went to a couple of bars together. He ended up coming back home with her. It's notable that he was in a relationship with someone else and she was in a relationship with someone else and they ended up falling head over heels for each other. It was a love... Not, maybe not necessarily a love at first sight thing, but the relationship that these two had would be covered extensively once she became a celebrity. Uh, the sort of thing where it's almost hard to understand why they felt the way that they felt for each other if you're not in it. it they were addicted to each other. Like They, they complement each other extremely well, you could tell. This relationship uh, ended up being one of the most destructive things in Amy's life because she became extremely codependent on him. Having never felt the way that she had felt for someone like this person, she sort of, her emotions just got the best of her and she didn't want to do anything else other than hang out with this guy. And then he broke up with her and she was heartbroken and started drinking heavily. Her place became a mess. Um, she was almost inconsolable. And this is the first time that she started to experience having, you know, a problem with alcohol. Uh, her friends and her family started to get extremely concerned. They knew, especially her management, which is, which you know, predatory. They knew that her being in this state would cause her not to want to release quality music or, you know, to perform specifically. And her friends and, and her, her manager, uh, Nick, who also worked for uh, Island Records, knew that she needed to go into rehab. Uh, her father, of course, this guy. Every time I hear about this guy, I'm, I'm appalled because it's so obvious how this man doesn't care as much about her as, as he does knowing that she make can make money. You know, he's just so blinded by greed because he's the guy who says you know, she's fine. She doesn't even go. She doesn't need to, to have professionals deal with her. And as it turns out, had she had gone into rehab before she ended up becoming a huge celebrity, she might have been able to deal with, with the drug problems and, and, and perhaps complete it. Maybe not suffer as much as she did when it was happening. But she turned it around. Uh, she never forgot about Blake, but she dated other people. He ended up becoming the subject for her most well-known, and as it would turn out, final record, Back to Black, which she recorded in 2006 with Salam Remy and later Mark Ronson. Um, most of the songs on this album were solely written by Winehouse. The first sessions were done literally with just Remy and Winehouse solo on guitar at his house. Stylistically, Winehouse was starting to shift away from soul and jazz to uh, the girl groups of the 50s and 60s. Think like the Ronettes, you know, the big hair, the dress. You know, she really loved that that appeal, that I, that that image. And so she sort of dressed herself up after that, and uh, she liked the way that, that she sang. Um, she knew, of course, that she wanted a classic sound to go with that image, so she hired legendary soul backing band the Dap Kings of Daptone Records. 
Uh, and it really shows. Um, people who have not listened to this record yet, and you really ought to, I don't know who hasn't, because these songs are so widely known. Um, that classic analog sound, like the horns just sort of panned across all these stereo channels. Um, the, the smoothness, like the rich chocolatey, like it's so evident in that music. And it, it really fits well with her song, her voice and her sound. And Mark Ronson also has a huge contribution to that. Um, but Winehouse wrote all of the songs uh, midway through the record production. Her grandmother died, and you know she f tried to fly out to see her before she died. Um, her grandmother was one of these people that was a huge influence on her, a, a very stabilizing influence. From the moment she died, it wrecked her, and it ended up causing her to go even further into a spiral. She started drinking again, um, where once she was very fastidious and industrious in the recording booth, then she would just, she would have like a few, she would knock back a few whiskeys and Cokes and, and, and take her time and she would be incensed and y you could tell that her mind was not in a good place, uh, which sucks at the moment because when Back in Black was released, it was released to absolutely massive sales. Uh, it hit the the UK charts at number one, um, then it dropped down, then it went back up. Time Magazine named uh, Rehab, the lead single, the best song of 2007. The funny thing about this song is that you want to talk about Frank. It was one of the, f I mean, all of her songs were frankly about what she was going through at the time. There's no question about it. But that song was specifically about the circumstances surrounding that period where she was offered to go to rehab and her dad told her not to do it because she needed to make money. We know the circumstances nowadays and it makes the song that much more tragic, but it's also such a catchy song and she wrote and she wrote and sang it with such purpose and such verve, you know. It's unquestionably she was an amazing singer and that and that was an amazing song. Um, Back to Black ended up being world domineering uh, and it it caused a number of very subtle shifts in um, popular music. Uh, emotional soul singing came back in vogue again. People were all of a sudden interested in authenticity again. It really mirrored the rise of balladry artists like Adele wouldn't be the singer well-known that she is if it weren't for Amy Winehouse's success. Um, pop music went to the club in the late 2000s, but artists like Gaga and I guess even Kesha really, like not necessarily a bratty uh, sound, but the way where you could sing it and it felt rebellious and it felt like you weren't just a prepackaged product. Amy Winehouse sort of started that with that record. So we know disaster is coming because Amy got back together again with Blake. They really couldn't do without each other. I forgot, okay, I forgot to mention this, but a month after Amy met Blake for the first time, she got the name Blake tattooed across her neck and then later across her heart. Uh, Blake also got her name tattooed uh, somewhere else, I think uh, behind her ear. Um, the, the feelings that they felt for each other were extremely intense and it would end up being toxic because Blake, during the time uh, between when he broke up with Amy and got back together with her, ended up doing heroin. He would do heroin in front of her and then he introduced her to crack cocaine. This was in the middle of 2007, shortly after Back to Black came out. And it was a nightmare. You know, she, after she started doing crack cocaine, it's literally all, it's what you, all you can think about, really. It changes your entire worldview. She started getting spacey. Her performances started slipping. 
Um, she really had no other interest other than being with Blake and doing drugs with him. And it makes sense. You know, it's the same thing we saw with Kurt Cobain. Um, if you if you are in love with someone, you it's that embryonic comfy feeling and 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 opiates like uh, heroin and um, drugs like crack cocaine. You know, especially there, it's another element of codependency where if one person's doing a drug you want to be on the same level with them, especially if you feel that way about them, so you have to do it. And that makes it that much harder to quit. She knew deep down that she shouldn't have done it, but she was. She had no choice. She was absolutely... It's an insidious drug. She was completely addicted to it. So she was dealing with substance abuse. She was dealing with furthered alcoholism, and um, she was also dealing with these tumultuous emotions with her relationship um, because, you know, now that she was under the drug spell, things would get hairy, you know, they would fight with each other, and it became very violent. As a result, her live performances were slipping. Um, also, the fact that her celebrity was getting bigger and bigger, she constantly had to deal with paparazzi following her every move. The fact that she couldn't go anywhere without cameras flashing in her face. Um, she had to drink heavily to calm her nerves on stage, and and because of that, she was getting worse and worse on stage. There's one particular performance that signaled things to come. This is a performance she did in late 2007 at the start of a U.S. tour at the National Indoor Arena in Birmingham, Alabama. The night was captured by a music critic who was writing for the Birmingham Mail, um, who captures the scene pretty succinctly. Winehouse shows up a half an hour late. She's got her whiskey glass in hand she starts racing through her set she slurs her words she forgets her words throughout the show she would constantly ask for more drinks she would get drunker and drunker she would start singing songs about blake and then during those songs she would start sobbing she would apologize to the crowd which is the saddest thing you know because she knows that she's screwing up and she doesn't feel like she has control about it people start booing her um the worse and worse it gets, and she starts swearing at the audience, you know, actively being antagonistic. She leaves, and she tries to come back for an encore, but at that point, people are already disinterested, and they start leaving. She throws her mic stand in the audience. It's just a sad sight. Um, of course, shortly after this scene, her management realizes, well, you're a train wreck, and we're going to cancel the rest of your shows. They announced it. We're canceling your shows. She needs to get some emotional rest, is what they said. But her drug problem was getting worse and worse and worse, and she couldn't handle it. You know, she tried to detox. Um, her parents, uh, both sets of parents, were getting super worried about her. You know, Mitch, maybe for some sort of predatory. You know, if she starts, if she continues to do drugs, yeah, she'll lose her life. But she's also gonna, we're also gonna lose this cash cow. Um, and they want her to go into detox, and it's hard to find. A, a detox unit that will take care of them both because they didn't want to do detox without each other, you know. The problem is, is that a lot of drug counselors would see them and be like, well, you know, we usually want people to go into detox separate from each other, especially if it's a relationship of people that are doing drugs together because it makes it that much harder for one to quit when the other starts doing it again. But eventually they found a, a detox unit that would take them in and they left and got high right afterwards. Like, it was toxic. They couldn't. They couldn't do it. So Blake ends up getting arrested for drug possession for perverting the court of justice. He claims that Amy has nothing to do with it whatsoever. Uh, that remains to be seen because I think there was some money involved where she was... I think she paid 
off somebody to try and get Blake off, but I don't think anybody could prove it. And this was where she started to spiral completely. You know, the person, the love of her life, the person that she had married uh, the year before was all of a sudden incarcerated. She had lost him. She had lost her grandma. Um, there was nobody surrounding her but a father who was milking every dollar out of her, a management that was milking every daughter out of her. And she started to spiral completely. Like, she would do hard drugs. She started to develop early signs of emphysema. The fact that she was already bulimic means that her her health was rapidly deteriorating. Her body just could not handle the things that she was putting into her. There's pictures and footage of her just looking like a, a skeleton. Somebody who's so deeply internally sad and is so bored with life. Until one day she said, you know what, I'm sick of this. I'm tired of being addicted to drugs. She went to St. Lucia with the guy that she started to see at the time. Um, and during the time she was there, she completely went clean. You know, she took she took the time off and, and did what was right for herself, which that is a hard thing to do. And I and you knew that she had to do it. The problem was she still needed a, a force in her life that 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 had to help her steer her on the right path because she had no idea. And um, her father was still in the business of trying to make sure that the machine was still continuing, which is why when she was staying in St. Lucia, he hired a camera crew to follow them around for a documentary that he was making about Amy. And you could tell that she was displeased with that. And even though she loved her father dearly, it was yet another weird, codependent, tragic relationship where she just wanted to be out of the limelight. She wanted to stop. She wanted to stop singing the same old songs and playing to tens of thousands of people because she is. she stated over and over in interviews she didn't give a shit about it, you know. She, she could care less about being that famous. All she wanted to be was just a, a kind of well-known jazz singer. All anybody really wants to. When you hit that level of fame, you don't know how to deal with it. And the fact that she had so many poisonous people that she looked up to, uh, it was just no support system. It is worth mentioning that while she was in St. Lucia, there was a man who had to undergo medical tests. Um, his name isn't known. But he stated that uh, even though the medical test cost a fortune and he had no insurance, Amy paid for all of it. It must have been in the tens of thousands of pounds. And she asked for nothing else in return. She was one of those people that in the industry, she was just known for being a charitable person. The kind of person who would donate money to charity, would fight for breast cancer research and climate change research, and um, would donate clothes to uh, charities and, and do a lot of things for the children. You know wherever she could give away her money to. So she came back from St. Lucia uh, off of drugs. The problem is, is that it was very obvious that she was using alcohol as a way to supplement that. So she kicked off her drinking again. It didn't stop. In February of 2008, the uh, 2008 Grammys were happening. And she was not able to attend the Grammys due to the fact that she wasn't able to get her visa cleared for some drug charges. So she performed via satellite. Um, it was an enormously successful night for her because uh, Back to Black won Best Pop Vocal Album, Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. She won Best New Artist. She won Song of the Year, and she won Record of the Year. And she won Record of the Year watching Tony Bennett, one of her all-time idols, say her name on TV. And she was flabbergasted, but one of her close friends... Um, 
who was there at the time, uh, was backstage with Amy talking about all of her success and being like, I can't believe this is happening to you. And Amy turned to her and said, it's just so boring without the drugs. You know, that's, that's how far she had fallen. Um, at that point, you know, her performances had become so volatile that many people had lost faith in her ability to perform accurately and, and, and consistently. You never knew what you were going to get when you went to an Amy Winehouse concert. She would continue to do shows. Uh, just sometimes she would be fine, sometimes she wouldn't. Her alcoholism was still a big problem. They tried to hold interventions for her and they didn't end up working. By 2011, she was on the right track to getting herself back into what, she, what it is that she wanted to do. She was very interested in getting back to her jazz roots. She did an album with Tony Bennett, um, one of his duets albums, um, which went very well. Her performances are obviously amazing. Um, you can tell the clip that we played at the beginning of the podcast was her singing jazz, which in my opinion is sort of where she was meant to be. It's just so, her voice is so brilliant in that regard. It covers that jazz spectrum unbelievably. And she knew it. I think after, after she did that duet with Tony, it revitalized her and she started to get creatively interested in her own projects. What she did was she reached out to Questlove and decided she wanted to put together a little bit of a super group with him and Mostef and Raphael Sadiq. Could you imagine how that would sound? That's the biggest potential waster. Like, Questlove was shocked at how much knowledge she knew about uh, jazz and jazz standards and jazz players. And um, when she was planning on these sessions, she would give all these people homework. She'd be like, all right, listen to this, and we're going to sound like this when we come into the studio. Um, and she was primed for it, you know. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the management was like, we need to make money off of you because we're not making money off of you right now, and uh, we need you to go on tour. We want you to do uh, some back-to-black shows. In her mind, she's like, oh, my God, please, please don't make me do back-to-black again. I'm so tired of singing like this, like... And in her mind, she knew that she didn't want to go on tour. She didn't want to have to go through the stresses again. She was already fighting off her alcoholism. The fact that she was able to go for weeks without taking a drink. Um, she was off drugs completely. And the management and her father were like, no, we got it. We got to keep going. Chop, chop. Let's do it. So she started drinking heavily again as a way to escape, as a way for a couple of reasons. A, she had signed a contract previously stating that she wouldn't tour unless she was clean because they needed her to, to, to be clean on stage and have a consistent performance. It was the only way they were going to keep her in, in, as a marketable force. And B, uh, she just needed to get out of it mentally. Um, she fell right back off the wagon. The day she flew out to Belgrade to start the tour, she was asleep. And then she woke up in a cab because people had put her there in the cab to ship her off to the airport in Belgrade. The next night, she gets on stage in Belgrade, like stumbling drunk, like out of her mind drunk. And she's trying to talk to anybody who will listen on stage. She doesn't want to perform. She doesn't want to do it. She just stands there with her arms crossed like, I, I, I'm not doing it, you know? She just doesn't give a fuck anymore. Her bodyguards, she tries to escape the stage and her bodyguards are like, no, stay here, you gotta play. And she just rebels. And a lot of people in the audience are like, 
that's Amy. You know, she's old, drunk Amy. Just, I can't believe she's fallen this far, but she was actively resisting being this force. You know, she had just had it. She would rather self-sabotage and destroy her entire career than do one more show with that back-to-black material. So at that point, her management was like, all right, we get it, we hear you, we're mad at you, but we're just going to cancel the tour, you know, get some rest, do whatever the fuck you need to do. Um, People were scared for her. So she spends the next few weeks doing what she's doing, um, getting herself back in key, probably doing what she wants to do, perhaps still working on the projects that she is working on. She does start drinking a little bit again. Um, Not as much as she used to, but enough to maintain the fact that she was probably still on the precipice of being an alcoholic. So it's worth mentioning that she had a personal bodyguard. His name was Andrew Morris. Uh, This was a guy who not only was her bodyguard was but was sort of ended up being the support system that she sort of needed you know he was the guy who if she wanted to go out for a drink you know get get sloshed before a show or an interview she had to do he was the guy who would put his foot down and say nope stay here you'll thank me later the kind of thing that she desperately needed to to keep her in check um so this guy was was keeping watch over her during uh, his final day she he noticed that she was drinking but not necessarily drunk You know, um, she was showing him the night of her death. uh, She was showing him clips of singing and sort of regretting a little bit of how famous she had gotten. She's been like, I wish I could just go back to to singing for small clubs. And then that morning uh, around 10 a.m., she looked like she was still asleep. He tried to get her up, like tried to rouse her and uh, she wouldn't get up. And it was a common thing to happen, you know. It was one of those things where she would sleep on. and then So he gave her more time to sleep, but at 3 p.m. when he tried her again, she wouldn't get up. And then he called the paramedics, and she was uh, declared dead on the scene. The coroner later discovered that she had a blood alcohol content of just over 0.4%, which is five times the legal drinking limit. And a lot of that also was exacerbated by the bulimia that she was still doing and um, the fact that her lungs were were not in great shape after chain-smoking crack cocaine for months. And that was that. She was just gone. Just out of the blue, just... That's the saddest thing, really, is... You know... All these artists we've talked about, every single one of these people... You know, some people obviously can deal with fame and fortune. Um, But when you have a case like Amy, somebody who would never necessarily state it, it's there's so many different causes for the circumstances that led to her death. Some of it was her own doing. Some of it was the fact that she didn't have the kind of willpower to discipline herself or get herself off of drugs. But she was also led astray by some very powerful predatory men in her life, her father, the guy that she was in love with, um, the, her management, the people that were using her for money. You listen to that voice and the fact that she could convey emotion so stoically and resiliently. And it's it's just that much more tragic that it had to end that way. But then you see what she was doing and it, it just makes a lot of sense. And that's just young potential. I mean, if we're going to bring this around 
to a conclusion. You know, why does the 27 Club exist? Why do people care so much about revering people? I mean, the number itself is arbitrary. It's this apophenia is what they call it when you make um, connections between things that are completely arbitrary and, and it's irrational, you know. All it really is is a pay into to wasted youth, to, to, to the power of, of fame. And it's morbid and people get fascinated by it. But if you're not in it, if you're not experiencing the catastrophic nature of having all of the nation's eyes on you, all of everyone's eyes, especially in the modern age when the media just gets out of hand and, and everyone's... When you have someone who literally is selling your naked body and your story for heroin money like exactly what Blake did back in 2007 you know how how do you escape that how 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 would you even drum up the strength to be able to do that if you don't know anything else you know some of these deaths are are linked to racism in the case of Robert Johnson or sexism in the case of Janis Joplin um, and some of these are linked to how soul-sucking and, and destructive the music industry can be, you know, in the case of Winehouse. And when artists die in this way, it's, it's corruption of music's inherent purity. I mean, who, who knows if music is pure to begin with, but the expression of art, the... The, the human force, the thing that, that differentiates you from, from many other species, you know, when things like money and fame and attention and, and the business of it, the machine corrupts that, it's, it's too much, you know, and things like this happen. But we keep plugging along, you know. No one gave a shit about Winehouse when she was dealing with that shit because no one, it was just the nature of it, you know. And many people still don't, you know. So many people have this image of Winehouse as somebody who didn't give a shit about her art, you know, just achieved fame and then was a brat, a diva, if you will. It couldn't have been further from the case. And we'll never get to know these people truly, who they were on a base level, no matter how much footage exists or how often we hear them talking. Because at the end of the day, once you get that famous and you're... you're you're well enough, well known enough to to belong in some stupid arbitrary club. You're not a person anymore. You're an idea, you know. You're not even your art anymore. You're you're this expectation of what a person should be when they're in that situation. And the best we can hope for, the absolute best, is just to remember that all of the music that these people made came from a place of happiness and suffering and in real life you know, real artistry. It sounds stupid saying it, but it's, it, all, it all meant something back then and it, and it means something regardless of whether or not people put flowers on a grave or, or make statues or wax figures, you know. Who gives a shit about fame, really? Who gives a, a shit about this club except for the fact that some of the music that these people made were changed what we thought about music forever that's that's what we have to thank for it's maybe not the case for some of these artists but i mean 
what we see nowadays is that music is even more of a noble pursuit than ever before now that there's not enough money in it. So do yourself a favor and if you're ever listening to any of these artists' music, just stop and think, you know, and be grateful that they went through the things that they did so that you could listen to it, to, to their expressions, you know, the things that, that made them unique and, and the energy that they put out for you, you know, the people that they thought would never exist, but, you know, just be grateful. That's what music's for, you know. Uh, I'm rambling, so I'm going to stop here. Uh, this is the end. We have reached the end of uh, this exploration of this arbitrary club. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Um, next week, we are going to be continuing with more guests, more music, more fanfare more excited people, a lot of caffeination. It's going to be really great. Until then, thanks for listening. I've been Rob Mora. Uh, I hope you guys have a really wonderful day. Stay safe out there. Stay great. Listen. Goodbye.